Greetings, troubled listeners. Welcome back to the Troubled Men podcast. I am Renee Coman, sitting in my safe house on the line with my co-host, the original troubled man for troubled times and future mayor of New Orleans, Mr. Manny Chevrolet. Welcome, Manny. What's going on with you, man? I'm having a busy week, man. And thankfully, uh, you know, it's a, it, it, it picks my mood up when I have a lot of stuff to do. You know, it's, it's, that's been the whole, the whole exhausting part of this lockdown is, uh, you know, just staring at the walls. But uh, I did a live stream with the iguanas yesterday. Uh, I have a live stream tomorrow doing a, a whole set of meters material with uh, John Grow and... Uh, you know, so it's 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 been a good week. How about you? Uh, yeah, keeping it together. You keeping it together? Yeah, yeah, keeping yeah. It together. Because I've been <laughs> yeah. hearing some things, man. I've been hearing some things. Oh, about me? Yeah, I hear some things. Okay. <laughs> some things I've heard. I've heard some things. Well, there's things to hear. That's for sure. Yeah, I heard. I've been. I've been hearing some things. In fact, um, remember a few shows ago. Uh, I uh, I uh, I called you on the, the, your gayness. Remember? Okay, I do, I do recall that. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, I wanted you to come out finally and say, you know, you're gay. But anyway, it must have t- uh, hit a chord with some of our listeners because I got hmm. I got a bunch of I got like a few private messages. Oh, really? <laughs> to me about uh, uh, thanking me for trying to get you to come out. Oh, okay. Yeah, right I, on. And, in fact, uh, I had a, uh, there was some listener who's a big fan of your band, big okay. fan of the show, and uh, uh, he said he met you at a festival uh, a few years back uh, in the Midwest, and he had to stop your advances for some reason. <laughs> you he know, had to stop your advances. If I may interject in here, I, I, was, I was a little depressed. I found out. I just found out the other day that my dog is gay. <laughs> his, his penis, his penis tastes salty. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, Manny, you know, you suck a couple of dicks, and everybody wants to call you gay. You know, I don't know. I don't right. Know. I tried it, but I could not get good with the shit in the back of the throat. It kept fucking. I kept choking. So I just, you know, <laughs> I won't. Yeah, but all seriousness aside and all that, you know, there's all kinds of people in this world that are into this and that, and we love who we love, you know, regardless to what gender, you know what I'm saying? So Yeah, I understand that totally. And in today's uh, world, you have to be aware of all that. But, but Well, yeah, I don't, you know, someone may hear this and go, oh, that, and it's like, you know what? People are people, and 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 the the talk a second ago, you were going like, "How you doing, Manny?" and "How you doing, Renee?" And we, whether you're black, you're white, gay, straight, transgender, whatever, we are all the similar. Let's look, try to look at the similarities because we're all so much alike. You know what I'm saying? Like one could sit and go, "I'm so depressed." about what's going on and rightfully so, but we're not alone. You know what I'm saying? Yes. Yes. It's good to be flexible. You know, it's good to, to, to have some flexibility in your, your, your expectations. I think, I think one can forget that, you know what I mean? And, and, um, and uh, others, whoever they are, are going through the same stuff 
You know what I mean? As far as uh, what's going on now and dealing with it and coping with it. And like I said, the, um, the similarities, not the, if one can stay maybe more focused on the similarities rather than the differences. You know what I'm saying? Right. Yes, yes. It's, yeah. uh, it's a solid, <laughs> solid attitude, man. Yeah, well, I think it keeps things in perspective. You know what I mean? So, yes, um, yes. Yeah, well, you know, when it comes to this whole uh, uh, they, them, he, she, me, he, I, I just never got the memo on that. You know, I, I just never got the memo, you know, you know, so I don't get it. And I, I work at a, a, a college university here in New Orleans, and it, it's it's a big thing down here, but uh I, I I never got the memo, so you know if uh, if a, and, and a lot of the kids now are wearing uh, a buttons that say uh, he they or she them, and you know it, it doesn't it makes no sense to me. You know, uh, I, I think I think now you know we're all a little bit older. I, it, there seems to be this. I've got a young kid, thirteen year old girl, and there seems to be this emphasis on. Well, I'm, I'm pansexual, I'm bisexual, I'm, everything has to have a label, and it's gotten really crazy. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, it's, it's too much, and, and I'm a, I'm, I guess I'm old school or something, but I, I think it's just too much, you know. Uh, you yeah. know and I got in trouble uh, a few days ago by saying, you people, you, know? <laughs> you people, that kind of thing. Well, it depends who they were. I mean, who Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, let's see, uh, man, do you have anything else or should we get to our guest? Yeah. Yeah. To just say. introduce him finally. Yeah. Right on. Right on. Well, so our, our guest, uh, he's comes from, from kind of showbiz royalty his, his father was soupy sales, had a, a television show from like 1953 to 66. He grew up in that milieu. He, uh, he was in a, a band with his his brother Tony as Tony and the Tigers when he was just uh, just a, a preteen as he was talking about. Um, uh, he went on to you know to be a drummer on some incredibly iconic records. Uh, uh, you know, Lust for Life with Iggy Pop. Um, uh, played on uh, some Todd Rundgren records in, in Runt, uh, and um, I was noticing, realizing that you were the, the drummer on uh, Slut by uh, Todd Rundgren on Something Anything. It's yeah, we a great track. We got to get your woman, which is one of his bigger hits. Yes, yes, yes. And then, and then uh, after that, uh, you were in Ten Machine with David Bowie. You and your brother were the rhythm section in Ten Machine, and that was a, a the. A, band that y'all had together yeah so without further ado and we'll talk about he just has a uh, his first solo record out came out last year uh, uh on the, it's the hunt sales memorial the record is uh is uh get your shit together so without further ado the legendary hunt sales welcome hunt thank you it's nice to be here with you talking with you and manny and uh it's nice to be anywhere as well yes. above ground <laughs> um, um, I first want to say years ago, I live in, I live in Austin, Texas, and there's a club here. Um, well, there's a lot of clubs, but there's this one club called the Continental Club, and I used to go there quite a bit, you know, to hear this, that, and I see this band, I'd heard of them, the Iguanas, 
And that's where I first saw Renee play. And uh, I was blown away by this guy's playing, his sensibility, his feel. And uh, my brother's a bass player. I've been around a lot of different bass players, you know what I mean, um, throughout my life. And, um, and then Renee and I got to be, you know, speaking on speaking terms and I, we met each other and uh, I would look forward to every time Renee would come around with the band, the Iguanas, and then I'd, you know, go by and see him and say hello and da, 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 so forth. So it's really nice to be sitting here talking with you, Renee. Um, man, it's such a thrill. I'm, it's, it's such kind words, huh? That means so much to me, man. And yes, it's a, it's a, it's, um, you know, there's like the 10, someone said this to me years ago, I was living in Nashville and there was so much bullshit there. Um, and, and in between the bullshit, there's like the 10 or 20 percenters, which are the motherfuckers who can really play. And you're one of them. And I'm not blowing smoke up your ass. Right. I'm just calling it, this is my opinion. Someone may say something different, but um, you're really a fine player outside of a per fine person. But just your playing really struck me, your feel. But um, so, Renee, um, we have been, we spoke and he told me about this podcast. And here we are um, seeing that. The iguanas will not be playing in Austin anytime soon that I know of. No, no time soon. You know, I spoke to to Will Sexton uh, f a few days ago, and he was saying, "Well, it'd be nice to if if we could uh, get together in Austin and maybe do a, a show outside at the at the San Jose uh, Motel parking lot." And, I was, and he goes, "Maybe in November." He goes, and I thought, I thought, man, that seems pretty soon. You know, I don't know if that's good. We're going to be able to pull that off, but, uh, he wants to get out of his house. You know? Yeah. 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 I think we all do, man. We're all ready to, to see some different sites here, you know, but, uh, but yeah, I'm not sure if November is going to be any, it's going to be much different. I, I can think of a lot better places than the parking lot at, uh, the San Jose. Okay. Let's yeah. Go. I mean, they're just trying to, he, he's trying to uh, like spitball of like someplace that would be outside that you could actually, you know, yeah, uh, there's bands that are out there playing us. Uh, someone told me that the, uh, that band, the chain smokers, you know, they uh -huh. were, they're doing some gigs where people pull up. Yeah. I don't know if they're doing any of this in, uh, in your neck of the woods where almost like a drive-in movie thing where people are in their cars and, um, they have a big lot and right. pull in and then the band's on stage. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, yeah. Any, any of that kind of situation? Uh, um, they did a show like that in New Orleans at the the UNO Arena, uh, like parking lot or the field there, and they and uh, but you know they've only done a couple of them. And they're they're big productions, you know, like a uh, like this band Galactic, who has a big national following. They did one and uh, a couple of others like that, but not not too many. It's it's pretty pretty uh, limited here. I mean, let's face it, we've got major problems. This stuff, uh, this has not gone away yet. And uh, unfortunately, here in, in Austin and in Texas is one of the hot spots for this disease, you know, this thing that's this uh, right. 
pandemic that's going around, and and a lot of it um, was um, that made it get bad again was they reopened a bunch of bars because people just had to sit around and next to people and drink, and it's right. and then they ended up closing all of them again, and the and the stuff is spreading. So it's definitely a hurry up and wait. You know what I mean? Um, and see what happens because I don't see, I don't see it getting much better yet. I mean, um, no. you know, so uh, despite whatever, um, the word is not great and there's no cure. Um, no, it's going to be a while, man. The only thing we can do is what we've been told, which is uh, distance and uh, keeping clean and, wa- you know, watching your shit. So, uh, and that, unfortunately for, for you and me, it means a lack of live gigs where, you know, you play in front of people and that energy and that, that trip that happens. So, um who knows? You know, December, There, I was um, a promoter had spoken to me about coming over to Europe in December, a uh, festival in, in France. That ain't going to happen. Right. You know, they're yeah, they're, I'm not even sure they're letting Americans into Europe at this point, you know. They're not, thanks to our wonderful leader. You know what I mean? Right. He, he's right. Really helped a lot, you know. Mm. So... Uh, <laughs> And you know I'm being serious with that. Not sure, well, sure. So, Hunt, let's let's start from the beginning. Uh, you're you're born in Los Angeles? No, Detroit. Detroit, but your dad's a famous comedian. He's got a show that I used to watch as a kid with my mom. Right, my uh, dad local. My dad became a local star in Detroit. Okay. Yeah, with his show, he had two shows: and a daytime show, and then. He had a nighttime show, kind of like a Johnny Carson meets whatever. Um, have you seen the film clip of Clifford Brown? There's a famous clip of uh, of Clifford Brown, the trumpet player, playing on sure. it. Uh, my dad had a show. He had all kinds of people, Dinah Washington, Clifford Brown, um, you name it. And he, Your dad was a big jazz fan, right? Yes. And back in – people don't realize this. They may not. Back in the 50s, it was not necessarily normal to have black entertainers on TV. Okay? On the variety, you know, maybe at Sullivan, which I don't know what year that started. Um, But blacks were not on TV a lot. And my dad was one of the first that had a lot of black entertainers on his show. And I remember him telling me, somebody at the TV station, why why do you want all these da-da-da, you know, on on the show? And he he was incensed. And he said, you know, first of all, go fuck yourself. And second of all, they're they're artists and entertainers, and this is what we're going to do. So my father, a lot of people don't know that about him. And there's a, a clip out there. There's not very many of Clifford Brown, the trumpet player. Right. You know, uh, because Detroit back in the 50s 
that was one of the hot spots for jazz. You know what I mean? Like, uh huh. Like a lot of places, Kansas City, Detroit, you know, where they would people would tour, whether it's Miles Davis or whoever, um, Art Blakey, you know, whoever, Donald Washington, go on and on and on. And there was some- now was was uh, was was Max Roach on that band with with uh, with Clifford. Now my dad had a house band, and in his house band were a few of the guys that were uh, in the Motown house band. Okay. Oh, okay. The guitar player, I don't know his name, um, but the one of the guitar players that did all the early Motown stuff and a few others. There's some film clips up on YouTube you can find, not many, but he had a few of the Motown guys playing in his house band. And like I said, nice. he'd have this show on at night, you know, an evening show, and he would get whoever was coming through um, Detroit jazz people on his show. Like I said, Clifford Brown down in Washington, it goes, the list go, um, I've got a picture here, an old picture um, of of Dizzy Gillespie and my father. You know what I mean? Wow, nice. From TV show, Dizzy used to do the show and nice. um, just the list goes on. But, um, you know. So is that I, how you got, got into, interested in playing music was, uh, you know, all these, these people that your, your dad would bring around and you, well, you uh, what, what I heard at home as a little kid, as far back as I can remember, four or five years old was jazz, Duke Ellington, Count Basie, you name it. Uh, that's what would be played at home. Then, um, we went from Detroit and, you know, you're a big star in Detroit. What is the next logical step? It's to go to Hollywood. So my dad goes to L.A. and signs a deal with ABC TV. Um, with ABC TV. And we're out in California. And my dad made a bunch of records. Comedy, singing, you know what I mean? He had a hit. The my Mac. dad was also uh, had puppets, right? Yeah, but let me get to the music part of this. All right. Ask me. So I went to a recording session of my father's and I was either six or seven years old. I'm in LA and the drummer on the session was Earl Palmer. Nice. New Orleans guy. You got that. And when I saw him play on that session and what he did and how he handled himself and the way the music sounded, that's when I knew what I wanted to do. A lot of people, you'll ask them and they'll go, oh, the Beatles or whoever. That's not the case for me. Um, it was a combination of Earl Palmer and then another drummer who was a friend of my family's, a guy named Shelly Mann. Who, sure, uh, yeah, Shelly Mann, yeah, d- giant. Uh, was one of the original uh, session musicians that started that whole game in – uh, he had played with Stan Kenton in the late 30s, 40s, and so on and so on. And then he came out and was doing soundtracks for movies like The Man with the Golden Arm, Frank Sinatra movie, Shorty Rogers. Sure. Shorty Rogers, the uh, music arranger and writer, uh, and he was doing um, session work. And that's the same thing with Earl Palmer. See, a bunch of these cats got got – they were recording, of course, Earl Palmer on 8 million records, but they mm-hmm. they went out to L.A. Earl Palmer probably said, Jesus, it's nice in L.A. I can work here. 
and it got him out of New Orleans and he went to LA, or at least he was there back then in 61 or whatever year it was. Um, and you had Shelly Manor Palmer and then everyone knows about how Blaine and the wrecking crew and Glenn Campbell, right. Glenn Campbell, who started as a session guitar player. And a lot of people don't know that Dwayne Eddy, uh, not Dwayne Eddy, but, um, uh, who did summertime blues? Um, Nelson Eddie. I'm sorry. Eddie Cochran. Eddie Cochran. Yes. Uh, Eddie Cochran was a session guitar player. Okay. Huh. So you right. had, you had all these, you had this scene that started and originally because of movies, um, sound stages with recording music for movies and then pop records and all that starting in the fifties, you know what I mean? Um, and you had all these people that gravitated, Earl Palmer being one of them, to California where they worked seven days a week doing recording sessions from one studio to another. That world right. does not exist. I mean, they're, they're, it, it exists on a different level, I'd say, in Nashville and yeah, more than L.A. now. But, um, you know, these guys could do two, three sessions a day. You know what I mean? Right, yeah, have a driver to drive him in between studios. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They'd have, you know, maybe two or three drum sets, and they'd have one dropped off at at Gold Star Studio, and then they'd have another drum set dropped off at Paramount Studios, and then another one dropped off. So they would go, you know, the session work back in the day when I started, um, three hours – and you would get scale for every three hours, right? Right, right. Sessions. And they, I remember doing jingle work, picking up a couple sessions back in the 60s, uh, mid-late 60s, you know, for Bush Gardens and, and different companies. And man, they would spend about two minutes on the drum sound. The bass players would, pl everybody had a, a B-15, you know what I mean? Right. A B being yeah, yeah. Again, and they it, it didn't get like as we all know years later where they're spending two weeks on a snare drum sound and three right. days on a bass sound. This stuff had to be done, cut in three hours because if it goes over three hours, well, then you're over time. Yep. Now you're talking about paying everybody again. You know, so, 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 so I'm sorry to cut you off, but I want to get to back to you. So did you study with Shelly man or, uh, or he was just a kind of a mentor? He was a mentor. I, I didn't per se study with him, but he showed me some things. And as a little boy, of course, I'm like, you know, looking at people like Buddy Rich and these people with chops going, well, how do you do that? Da, 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 and, what I learned from Shelley, um, and like a lot of the great, great drummers like Al Jackson or um, Earl Palmer, some of my favorite drums, and that's maybe getting older, are like drums you hear on uh, a song like Bright Lights, Big City, Jimmy Reed. Right. That or an Al Green record where it's it's about a pocket, it's about a groove, and it's not about all this flashy stuff. You know what I mean? And it's like yes. it's building a house, 
And we all know if you do not have a good foundation, when you put the walls up or the second story up, it'll fall. It'll, you'll have problems. So it's all about a foundation. And I would say that goes with the bass guitar also. You know, you know, bass players, they got a six string bass and, um, um, and they play all over the place. But, um, it's right. It's, uh, Shelley was very much very a groove. He's a total groove. You know what I mean? Like right. one of the right. great players. And, um, I don't know if that's a thing, an older thing or whatever. You know what I'm saying, Renee, as far as bass about laying in. And sure, air. sure, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it doesn't but, you don't need to say a lot. You just need to make it feel right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I've I remember being in a club in Miami, Florida, '66, and I was taken to this club, and Wayne Cochran was playing. Oh and, yeah, and he had jog up a story, man. And, right. and I remember seeing him play, man, and forget it. And we don't need to say much more about Jacob's story. He was a monster. Right. You know, you know we, had the, we had the drummer from the Wayne Cochran band, uh, Alan Robinson. He was a, a, a guest on this podcast uh, early on. So, yeah, yeah, I'm well familiar with the, that band. Yeah, well, I remember seeing Wayne Cochran, and then there was another band uh, about the same size, 15-piece band, the Hornets, something, the something Hornet. You would know the name of it. And oh, I okay. remember seeing Wayne Cochran was, was you know, like the white James Brown. Uh, right. The problem with Wayne Cochran is he, ne- he did not have good material. You know what I'm saying? And that I felt that that probably held him back, even though he was giant. You know, back in the days of regional music, you know what I mean? Regional. Um, right. Well, they had they had great arrangements. Um, you know, the the Charlie Brent was the was the guitar player, and he wrote all his charts, which uh, were it was that band was kind of like Stan Kenton as a soul band, but in terms of like the harmonic ideas that that uh, Charlie wrote in those things, that was quite incredible. Right, but I was but I, you would say like the one of the biggest songs that he's known for, especially in Florida, is going back to Miami. You know what I mean? Right. Um, but he did not have the proper it's like uh, you can answer this question I'm going to ask you a question what is Frank Sinatra Tiny Tim James Brown what do they have in common they all took it up the ass well I (laughs) didn't want to go there but uh, what do they have in common I don't know tell me songs okay they have does the song make the artist or does the artist make the song and um we'll go back a a second to our conversation about alex when he had the box tops going he had hit records now people what was dan penn who was writing those songs yeah, Dan Penn wrote wrote a bunch of them, and you know Spooner Oldham uh, was his partner at times, and and uh, right, yeah, yeah, and that's what I thought was lacking. Um, regardless to like you're saying that the the later band that he had influenced REM and a bunch of bands, which they probably did, but the material, and and that that's what I'm saying. Tiny Tim had tiptoe through the tulips. Frank Sinatra had my way. 
I mean, they, Frank Sinatra had many more songs than that, but I'm just saying it's the song. And um, the right. song, I mean, of course, a great artist and interpretation, yes, that's a lot to do with it. But it is, uh, it's the song. You know what I'm saying? And uh, there's nothing sure. having a, 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 a song, whether you call it, I'll call it a ditty, you know what I mean? Um, like a lot of uh, rap things that are just one phrase, but it's a killer phrase. And all that comes from, right. James, from James Brown. You know what I mean? Um, right. Um, but it's the song. Would you not right. say yeah, no, you're right. And you know, I was I was looking at at this this record uh that you played on the Iggy record Lust for Life and man, every song on that record is is killer, man. It's it's like one after another. Yeah, it's and a, uh it's a pretty solid as far as pound for pound uh from side A to side B. It's pretty solid as far as the material. Man, oh man. But but don't but don't you think that uh, you mentioned James Brown, Tiny Tim, and Frank Sinatra, but Frank didn't write any of his songs. James and Tiny did. Well, the, they're only... So that's, there's a difference there. Well, yeah, there is a difference. I mean, I remember back in the day in New York, the Brill Building was still going when I got into the business, and they'd bring over acetates of songs. What do you think about this song and the songwriters? And a big thing that changed that, not only Bob Dylan... But now you had the Beatles who were self-contained. They wrote their own material opposed to Elvis Presley and a lot of these other acts. Now, uh, uh, one that wrote his own material, who was one of the first. I mean, there were people, of course, not a lot, but in the old days, it would be a singer and then there would be writers, right? There would be an artist then there would be producers and all that with the British invasion. And um, that opened the door here. You had the Beatles who wrote their own material. They didn't have writers um, opposed to the monkeys or whoever. And I'm not going to compare them. I did, but only in the sense the monkeys had people writing for them, uh, the same as Elvis Presley had people writing for him, um, the same as a lot of uh, artists would have. There's the songwriter, there's the singer, but all that, as you know, changed in the 60s with Dylan, the Beatles, and Simon and Garfunkel, whoever. The list could go on. Right, We're- right. Yeah, it's a changing of the guard. Yeah, that whole Brill Building scene started to started to, uh, to 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 die out because they didn't have the the outlet for for all that stuff. Well, right. I mean, you had you had artists that were that were self sufficient, and uh, but you know, at the end of the day, you got a top five, top ten record. Okay, someone else wrote it. Um, they're going to be making the mailbox money and the artists, well, they're going to be making the money at the shows. You know what I'm saying? So um, um, the ultimate is to write your own material. And that's something that I worked on for years, um, writing, working on writing and writing to me is no different in some way than the guy at the, uh, shoe repair place that repairs shoes all day. It's a labor intense job. Uh, and sitting, sitting and, and putting in 
time putting in five hours a day to, you know, I mean, there's a lot of musicians, you'll get an idea, something will come to you, fine. But you're not going to write enough material unless you put in the time. You know what I'm sure. saying? Sure. Yes, and, yes. And, and, there, and there's something about that that years ago, I had met some songwriters, and I remember meeting this one guy. I was dating his sister. I was going out with her, a couple dates, whatever. And I meet him, and oh, what's going on? Oh, not much. And he was at the piano. I said, well, what, what is your deal? He says, well, I get up about nine, have some coffee, and then from like 10 till 5 every day, I sit and um, I write. Yes. And about two, three years later, he had two or three top five singles. Um, he was married to Liza Minnelli. His name was Peter Allen. You remember him? Oh, I do know Peter Allen. Yeah, yeah. I'm a, I'm a big Peter Allen fan. Um, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's big in the gay community. Oh, yeah, well, yeah, he was. Now we're back to that. So yeah, yeah. the deal is, is that I realized, you know, this is not, not unlike working on scales. Uh, if you're playing scales and working on chops for a bass, you know, guitar or rudiments, you know, working on your technical stuff, um, which one must do at least when they're starting. And um, I feel, and you answer this for me, how you feel about this, Renee, one never stops learning and hopefully progressing on their instrument or, you know, writing instrument playing. And it's something that um, hopefully one keeps learning. You know what I'm saying? Uh, sure. Yes. It's, it's uh, you're, you're always refining your approach, you know, uh, yeah. uh, take it's a, a lot of, for me, it's a lot of it has been kind of reductive where I, I think, well, is that really necessary to do that? Maybe I could do less and have it be more powerful. And to a great degree, you know, that it's kind of whittling it down to the, the essentials, you know, how, how long, how many years have you been playing bass for me? Um, I started playing when I was uh, 12. I guess I started playing professionally when I was 13. Okay. So what is that? Five years? Yeah, you're right. Uh, <laughs> it's about, it's about uh, uh, 40 something years. Yeah, uh, yeah. You can tell players, you can, I can tell with drummers that have been playing for 10 years. I can tell drummers that have been playing for 20 years and there's something about playing an instrument. You got to get to about the 15th year. I don't care how good you are. And I feel like about the 15th, 18th year, that's when the shit starts to come together. Would you not agree with me or not? Well, no, the, I, I could see that. I mean, a lot of times people have, you know, uh, early bursts where, you know, of, of brilliance. But, but yeah, as far as that maturity and, and the, the wisdom to, to, you know, to only do what needs to be done. Yes, it's, that's, uh, it comes with maturity. Yeah, look, when I was 15 years old, now I've been playing now since I was seven. So seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. That's nine. I'm at the nine year point. Okay. At, at 15 and I'm on my first 
top 10 record called We Gotta Get You a Woman by Todd Rundgren. Now, um, Better Man Than Me have said, well, I'm on a hit record. I don't need to really learn much because I'm on a big hit record. When I did that record and it was a hit, I took a look at my shit and I looked around and, and looked at these other drummers, Tony Williams and people around at that time, not to mention mm -hmm. the others, Art Blakey and Philly Joe Jones and stuff. And it scared, it scared me. And I had studied with several different people up to that point. But um, I was introduced to this drum teacher and I took one lesson with him and he kind of fucked with me like, a, you know, in a sense of, okay, what do you know? And I realized how much I did not know. And uh, that's despite being on a hit record. You know what I'm saying? So it, 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 it drove me to the point of studying, getting really serious. And now I think music is a God-given gift. Would you not agree with me? Sure, absolutely. Okay, and, and some of us, depending on whoever, God gives you what amount of talent. He gives this guy a boy, he gives him a lot of, he gives him a lot of natural ability. This other one, he gives him just a little bit. And then this other guy, well, he gave him a little more and this other guy less. Now, so you've got this, you've got this God-given gift, but then you take it and it's what you do with it as far as perfecting it, working on it, challenging it, you know, developing it. And, um, and then as you get older, this word you mentioned, less is more. And that has a lot to do with, you know, whether it's second line and stuff, whatever it's called. Is that what it's called? New Orleans? Second yeah. 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 Second line. Sure. Street beats. Yeah. Second line. And, um, and, um, Fatback, which used to be a terminology, you know what I mean? Some drummers that right. I would, you know, and, and all the drummers I saw coming up and, and then, you know, seeing these guys that almost very primitive and the opposite of very technical. And I, for my taste and for my personal trip journey in music in this world i try to get somewhere between technical and then primitive okay and right. then it's back to those al green records where you know you don't you don't have a guy doing a lot of fancy stuff he's keeping a deep deep pocket and it's right. a it's a groove and um jesus that's probably why so many people screw up the blues, which is one of the hardest genres of music to play because, you know, it's the simplicity and keeping it simple, keeping it, you know what I mean? Uh, keeping right, and the feel keep and the sound, you know, that's something I notice about you and you can tell, you know, the, all of your, your training, but then, and I think 
because of that, because you understand the, the proper way to play, you get such a giant sound out of the drums, man. Every, any track I hear you on, it's like, holy cow, it's like, sounds like as big as a house. Well, Matt, with drums, it's just a millimeter, millimeter, whatever the word is, of a fucking hair of a second that can make a drummer sound really big or really small. You know what I'm saying? And um, one that had this together, that really had the art of that together was John Bonham. But just the way he threw that snare drum beat against the kick drum. You know what I mean? It would, and I don't mean the size of his drums. The way he played by offsetting the, offsetting the time, okay? And it's just milliseconds between hitting the snare and hitting the kick drum that'll make the difference, like I said, between sounding really big or really small. Oh, nice, nice. Well, you know, I'm looking at, at our drinks, Manny. Uh, do you think this would be a good time to take a little break and uh, refresh our cocktails? Yes. What are you guys you're drinking? Uh, I'm having a uh, gin and soda. Oh, my God. Okay. And, and Manny, What about you, Manny? Manny, Manny you- I'm having my vodka soda. Okay. Okay. So you got no drink. Nobody's got the drink. Right, right, right. So, uh, so, all right, Nation, we're going to take a little break here, and uh, we'll be right back. And we're back. Back with Mr. Manny Chevrolet. I am Renee, Renee Coman. I am Renee Coman. Back with our guest, you? Mr. I am Renee Coman. Back with our guest, Mr. Hunt Sales. Now, Hunt, we have a, uh, a great uh, product that we've been affiliated with for a few months here. Uh-huh. Uh, Manny, tell Hunt about, about this great product. Hunt? Yeah. It's called it's called the Velo Bar. It's a CBD bar. It's got 25 milligrams of CBD per bar, per bar. It's a healthy protein bar that'll fill you up and calm you down. And who doesn't need stress relief right now? Oh my god. You know? I know. It's a, you know it's a, You know the what? other day, you know the other day I got carjacked. Really? Yeah, and then I had to clean it off the dash and stuff. It was a mess. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hate that. I, I don't. I don't know if this Velo bar will help you with that. But uh, <laughs> does it have THC in it or not? No. Okay. So what is the situation in New Orleans as far as weed? Is weed legal there or what? No, no. It's Louisiana. No, it, it will be the last state to have to. For weed to be legal in, but anyway, Manny, go on with the with the uh, about the Velo Bar here. Yeah, Velo Bar, the nation, you know about it. It's a healthy protein bar that'll fill you up and calm you down. It's made with plant based protein with superfood ingredients like pumpkin seeds, hemp hearts, chia seeds, and of course the twenty five milligrams of CBD. Uh, it's yes. uh, it's a great thing. And if you go right now to velobarcbd.com, and put in the Troubled Men 1-5 discount code. You'll get 15% off your order and free shipping. So check it out. Hunt, check it out. Tell your friends to check it out. And it's a great thing. Is, is this, where's this product from? Is this a local product? No, no, no. It's a, a buddy of mine from high school started this company uh-huh. uh, a, a couple of years ago. It's based out of uh, 
the states that uh, have legal stuff, you know, like Oregon, California, Colorado, that's where it's made from. And uh, so check it out. Go to uh, VeloBarCBD.com, use the promo code TROUBLEMEN15 and get your discount and free shipping. Renee? Yes. And, uh, you know, as always, we want to invite the, uh, the nation to support the podcast and you can go there on, on the show notes or the, uh, you know, the Facebook page and click on that PayPal link and, uh, you know, help us, uh, support the, the, the running costs and, you know, support the cocktail fund. And I want to give a shout out to, uh, Harold McCoola, who, uh, was, was a supporter this week. So thank you very much, Harold. And, uh, you know, everybody take Harold's lead and, uh, you know, buy, buy us a cocktail and buy yourself one. Well, I still so, haven't got one free cocktail, but anyway, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Well, we haven't been able to be, to be together, Manny. So once uh, I think we're, we're right on the precipice of uh, breaking even, and then we're going to go into the black. And we go into the black and we can go back to the ring room. There'll be cocktails will be flowing uh, from the cocktail fund. All so right. that's something Whatever to look forward say. to. So, Hunt, I was saying we wanted to uh, we wanted to get to the, the Bowie part because, you know, everyone loves Bowie. He's so talented. Now, you you know, you worked uh, on a record that Bowie produced that Iggy Pop's Lust for Life. You know, you played the iconic, uh, you know, Lust for Life drum beat, which has been used in about every television commercial in the past 10 years. Right. Uh, you know, you can't get away from that, that Bo Diddley beat that you played that it's not quite, the, it's, it's your own interpretation of that, but it sounds again, big as a house. Uh, so that's when you first meet David no. and your brother, Tony is, Oh no. Okay. Go ahead. I'm playing, I'm living in New York, and I'm playing with Todd Rundgren. And this would have to be at the tail end of David Bowie when he was doing the Ziggy Stardust trip, okay? And you were like 16 or something at this time? 16, 16 or so. I'm living in New York, and um, and... On that Max's Kansas City, a famous bar. Right. Okay. And I meet David. And hey, how you doing? Da 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 whatever. And come down, we're playing Radio City Music Hall. He was playing Radio Music City Hall with uh Spiders from Mars. So mm -hmm. I met him, we hung out, da 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 have a drink. I go down and see the show. And uh, I was a fan of his, you know, back then. Uh, he had some really good songs. He had a good trip going on. And it was that tail end, middle end of the glitter thing, you know what I mean, that was happening. Right. And um, so I meet him there. So pushed to a couple of years later, a friend of ours, a friend of my brother and I, family, it's a guy named James Williamson. Sure, James yeah, yeah. played in the Stooges, yeah, yeah. In the Stooges. And James calls us up to work on this record, and we do a couple tracks on a record called Kill City. Right. Okay? So at that point, Iggy was not in great shape, and he was staying out at uh, some hospital, mental hospital, whatever. He was broke. Uh-huh. And uh, James, we worked on that record. Uh, Jimmy Webb, his brother, had a studio. 
when she was giving him studio time, James, to put the Ziggy record. So we do the Ziggy record, and I'm on a couple tracks singing and playing on that record, Kill Ziggy. So um, a while later, David gets Iggy basically off the streets of L.A. Iggy was unhirable, and the Stooges records were in the cutout bins for 69 cents. Okay? So right. you know how things change. And David takes Iggy over to Berlin where he was living and gets him a you know apartment and gets him a record deal with RCA for three records. So they do the first record called The Idiot. Right. And they're getting ready because they want to tour this record. And from what I hear, David says, who are these black singers you got on these tracks? They sound great. And he said, they're not black. It's the Sales Brothers. <laughs> oh, yeah, I met them. Da, 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 da. So I get it. I had just finished up. Um, I've been on the road for a couple of years now. I was out for about a year or so with, with Ray Manzarek from The Doors. He had, he had some solo records out. I was touring with Ray. And then I had this other band with a guy named Bob Welsh, who was in Fleetwood Mac. Mm -hmm. And we had a band called Paris. Right. And so this is about the tail end of 75. We're on the road. And we're doing okay. Pre-MTV. We're selling some units. We were a little bit different, you know, um, than let's say most of the stuff that's um, out there. Uh, if you've ever heard the record, it's a pretty cool record. Paris, uh, the one I did, uh, uh, Big Town 2061. But I had come down with Bell's Palsy. And um, so that tour was over. And then Bob decides to go back to doing a little more middle of the road kind of material, which he ended up with a couple of hit records after Paris. Sentimental Lady and whatever. So I'm okay. sitting in L.A., and uh, recuperating from Bell's palsy. That's where your face, half of my face is paralyzed, right? Okay. You're familiar with that? It's a I am, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I'm recuperating, and I get a phone call. Uh, would you, Iggy is over here with David and Berlin, and they'd like you and your brother to come over. Um, put together this tour for the record that's coming out in a month or two, whatever. No, no, no. The idiot. So, okay. So off I go to Berlin. Now, <laughs> the wall was still up. And right. it was a great experience. Now I'm over in Berlin with David and Iggy and... David not only is helping Iggy as far as, you know, getting him the record deal, using his business people, his whole thing that he had, you know, uh, his people. Um, and David is playing piano in the band. Okay. Right. So he's babysitting Iggy and playing piano. Right. And, um, we put the band together over there. In Berlin, we rehearse. We're rehearsing at this place, 
Tangerine Dream, if you remember them, they were there rehearsing. And okay. it, it was this old uh, compound, old film studio that Hitler used. It had a creepy vibe, let me tell you. There were like sound stages and shit. And so we rehearse and get ready for the first tour. And this tour was Europe and America. And it was like 76 gigs in 84 days. Jesus. Okay. Now you've toured. You hear what I'm saying? Between Europe and America, it was a motherfucker of a tour. But um, right. my brother and I delivered. You know, and it, it could count on us. Um, man, what a great rhythm section! Holy cow, man! You know, I'm, I'm you talk about you know bass players. God, Tony is yeah. so fantastic, man. You guys sound so great together. But anyway, I don't need to. So we, everybody knows that. So we do this tour, and it's between Europe and America. It's got to be six, eight weeks. It's got to be at least something like that. All over Europe, all over America. And having David with Iggy help kind of fill up some holes we were playing, you know what I mean? Just having David helped, you know what I mean? Reintroduce. Right, right. So that tour is over with. I'm back in L.A. I'm hanging out. And then we get a phone call. Okay. We're going to do another record. We're going to do a record. You guys want to come over and do the record. Okay. So we go to Berlin and we start working on Lust for Life. Now we must Lust for Life. I cut, I did all my work and we basically, Iggy had a bunch of ideas, a few songs, but it was really one of those things where uh, what's that chord? No, what's that? Oh, yeah, that one's good. That's, so <laughs> what you end up doing is you're writing, but you're not getting credit. You dig what I'm saying? So Right, right. What oh, song on that record? There's a song on the record called Fall in Love With Me. Right. I don't know if you know the song. Yeah, yeah, no, I do. I'm not playing drums. I'm playing bass on that rec- on that song. Uh, okay. That's me playing bass. We all switched nice. instruments and we're jamming and it turned into a song. And so we do Lust for Life in about, I'm done in about four days, five days. We do the whole record. Wow. And, no kidding, man. And it was real, one of those synergy or whatever the fuck you call it. It just came together. And what, what, you know what it's like, Renee, if, if you're out and you do a bunch of gigs with your band and you come back in town, it's a really good time to maybe, go into the studio because you've been playing every night for several months on the road. And right. The telepathy is, is at an all time high. Yes. You can, you can, uh, you can feel each other breathing. It's, yeah. It's so you close. T- you t- that's a strong force. And, and to tap into that shit is really cool. And, um, um, that's probably one reason James Brown made so many great records being on the road all the time. And then on a day off, they'd go into a studio whether it was in Miami or wherever, you know what I mean? And record because they were just going and going and going. So razor sharp. Yep. So we do the record and now David is off. He's off doing stuff with, Eno or whoever, um, He's working on tracks, uh, heroes and, and that stuff. 
And now he's not with us. And we get Scott Thurston comes in, who was in the Stooges. And then for the last 20 some years, he was with uh, the late, great Tom Petty. You know, Scott Thurston, keyboard player. Right. Right. Great, great guy, great guy, great musician. Uh, and Scott, I knew also was a friend. We used to hang out, James, Scott, my brother, and me. We're all, you know, more like friends than a music thing in the beginning. You know what I mean? Just more like a friendship. Okay. Um, I was never really a big fan of Iggy's myself. You know what I mean? I, I'd be listening to Solomon Burke and, and James Brown um, or Art Blakey. Uh, I was not listening to the Stooges. But um, that's kind of why I brought a different sensibility, I believe, to Iggy's trip. Okay. Right, right. Uh, yeah, it's probably why what, that record is, is so great because it's not everybody trying to do the Stooges. It's, uh, no, it's a, it's a no, different no. thing, man. No, I mean, fuck the Stooges. They had their trip. Great. But, um, right. you know, I told you my background is R&B soul. I played a million soul bands. You know what I mean? Uh, R&B bands and stuff and a bunch of jazz stuff in LA, organ trio, jazz music. So, um, all swings, all you, you play with such a swing. So yeah, yeah, go. That's yes. It's the jazz thing. I try to bring that into, uh, um, um, rock and roll where a lot of rock and roll drummers, you know, who, you know, who had a great swing was Ringo, you know what I'm saying? Or is a swing. And, and there are rock and roll drummers, some that do, but most of them are like plot along one, two, three, four, you know what I mean? And it's right. And, and that's the thing of, of, uh, not to get off the subject, but the thing about, uh, keeping it primitive. Okay. So let me get on. So we go now we're in LA and we start doing pre-production for lust for life now the album is slated to come out the day the album the week the album comes out is when elvis presley dies so Mm. rca records which was the label they dropped the ball on that record hall of notes a bunch of acts they had because they were into 24 7 manufacturing elvis product to, to maximize money on his death okay and it did not help the record. The record has gained momentum over all these years. You know what I mean? It's actually, I've lived long enough to see it. Really, it's like, it means something different today than it did back then. I right, mean, absolutely. Yeah, people can't conceive of, because it's so ubiquitous now, that uh, yeah. I think it was always like that, but it was not, man. That was just like an Iggy record that, you know, the fans knew about, but yeah. So now we do another tour with um with Iggy and minus David and um this great guitar player Ricky Gardner from uh Ireland or Scotland or wherever the hell he was from. He's mm-hmm. with us. This other guy from Canada, Stacy Hayden, guitar player, uh Scott Thurston and my brother, me and Iggy, and we do Europe, another one of these tours, another like seventy gigs in eighty days, uh between mm-hmm. Europe and America and our last gig was um, down in Santa Monica at the um, what is that gig where they that uh, venue? It's down in Santa Monica where they did the Tammy show. You know what I'm talking oh. about? 
Um, I, I'm not sure. No, it's a it's a 2000 2000 seater. Um, I can't think the name of it. We do that gig. It's an awesome gig, and we're back at my brother's house. Is it the Santa Monica Civic? You got it. Okay. And that's, that's it. And we're, we're at my brother's house, and we're there sitting with Iggy. And Iggy says, "Look, I don't want you guys. I don't want you guys in the band anymore." Uh, and I'm going, you're kidding me. I mean, fucking happening. He said, well, you guys, you guys feel like heroin to me and, uh, I don't want to need you. And you know, oh, ego, brother. And he, ego. I mean, he didn't want to need me. Well, I, I've only made it several million dollars over these years with that drum beat on all these commercials and TV shows that it's been on. Okay. Oh, no kidding, man. You know what I mean? So that that's what I didn't do for him. If you hear me, right, 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 right. So, so, so that that ends. Um, and, and but but David never forgets the Sales Brothers. Well, here's the trick. Here's the trick with David. At sound checks, Iggy would be late or whatever. My brother, me, and David, we would be jamming. See, we would be having fun, and. Um, we had our own little groove going on, our own little mm-hmm. chemistry. So I'm in Texas. Shoot two years later, the eighties, late eighties. I'm in Texas and I'm producing at this point, uh, arranging, producing tracks for people. You know what I mean? Hustling that. I'd go mm-hmm. to New Orleans, Florida, Texas, wherever, work with bands. Um, and my brother goes to a party. It was the rap party for this thing that David did called the Glass Spider Tour. You know what I mean? Like, what the right, fuck is right. that? Whatever that means. And uh-huh. David had a point in his life where he was questioning a lot of things. He had the money. He had done been here, done that, you know. Um, but he was kind of at a weird place in his career. He sees my brother and he says, Wow, how are you? And thing, and where's the drummer? And he said, I he's in Texas, but uh, he said, I had this idea. He said, I got this guitar player I met, Reeves Cabral, and, and why don't we get together? Call the drummer up, me. So I get a call from my brother. I'm in Austin um, producing a record. And I said, yeah, I'll be back next week. He said, well, David's out here, and he wants to get together and jam. So my brother, me, and David go into a rehearsal room in L.A., and a lot of the first record was put together there, Heavens and Here, and da-da-da-da-da. And David's saying, this guitar player, you got to hear him. He's really strange. He's got a different style. And then eventually we meet Reeves, and then the next thing I know, David says, come on over. I'm living in Switzerland. Come on over to Switzerland and let's do some recording. Now this, we get in the studio and it's evident within five or 10 minutes, this is not a David Bowie record. I am not working for David Bowie. I am playing with David Bowie along with my brother and Reeves. And it's like almost like we're 15 years old in a garage 
You know what I'm nice. saying? That kind of yes. mentality, like a band, except the lead singer's got a hundred million dollars. You know what I mean? That's right. the- and he, he he must have loved that, having been the guy who had been out front all these years. But you know, he's he's like all of us. He just likes to play and to be in a situation where okay, I got these these uh, you know monsters around me. And who who were like you know my my equals in 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 the studio yeah. and on the bandstand? I, look, I David to be very sweet. I miss him dearly. Um, had things about him that were great, and then there was things about him like all of us I didn't care for. But look, my father was a fucking legend. Okay. Uh, the people yes. I grew up around, Sammy Davis and Dean Martin and all these motherfuckers that I was around. And I'm not going to kiss anyone's ass except maybe my wife if I fuck up. Right. Yeah. And, 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 and <laughs> trying to kiss her ass. But um, outside of her, and, and I'm not going to be like an asshole or a dick to anybody, but sometimes David would say, what do you think about this? And then I go, you know what I think? Not much. You know, so <laughs> I, I was one of whoever that was not kissing his ass. He had all these people around him that would just, you know, you know how that you've been around. You've seen how people are. And and um, it was like it really was a band in, in the sense dynamically. And and that's what made that's if there's anything good about the tin machine, that's one of the main things that you have these four people, these four nut jobs in a studio recording. I remember when the engineer slash the guy, Tim Palmer, that ended up working on the record, he came in after a couple of days after we were there. I basically did the production on the drum sound and, uh, you know, the basic tracks. And Tim mm-hmm. came in and he was like, what the fuck is going on? If you listen to the records with the headphones, you can hear all this bleed. So you've got the four of us in the studio just fucking around. And we're basically writing and doing this record every day in the studio, one, two, three songs a day. Uh, what do you think of this or that? And, and um, multiple tracks. I mean, there's the, there's the stuff that the public's heard. But there are tons of tracks that are in a vault that we've recorded that no one's heard. Okay, wow. so we go in and record fifty songs, and then twelve, fifteen of them would end up on the record. But wow. like you said, you got the three of us. I don't know about Reeves, how far back he goes, but I've been making records since '65, and David, that's around. His, he gets into the business and is recording. So you got him, my brother, and me have been. You know, I'm not as big as that. I'm not a star like David Bowie. But regardless, I put in the years and the time and the work recording and playing for years. So it was really a good situation uh, where I was working with David and not for him. Okay, man. And you. You know, I've been watching the uh, some of the documentary that you guys shot at uh, at the airport, and yeah. it's the, this track stateside that you're singing, yeah. and and man, what a fucking beast! Anybody wants to check out what 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 Hunt Sales is like, just to look at this video, look at this fucking beast of of a drummer and singer. And so I'm watching this. I'm going now. What does it feel like to have David Bowie singing background vocals for you? 
<laughs> um, on record, he was the main lead singer, but I'm the I'm the only other one that had a couple tracks on the album, you know, that I had brought in. You know what I mean? Right. And right. I'm a co-writer on a bunch of the material that's out there that on the Tin Machine Records. Um, I got co-writing credit, of course, because I did uh, right. writing a bunch of the stuff. But uh, it, it ran its course. Um, and then the powers that be, I know that, um, the promoters, the, uh, booking agents, um, and right now, you know, the big booking agency, um, what are they called? They've run everything now. Um, you know, live nation, live nation, they they used to be called something else. And I don't think. They really dug David. We were playing thousand seaters, two thousand seaters, you know, small venues compared to what David was doing, minus Tin Machine. And a lot of people that worked for him and that were around him, they did not fucking understand what we were doing. I remember this person that worked for him, the story I heard, they came up to the sound guy at the board and said, What's going on? And it was, a, it was a, we were in the middle of a part of a song. And it's a thing that you'll know, Renee, it's called dynamics. <laughs> right, sure. Just mostly heard in blues and jazz. And uh, if you're lucky, you may hear it in other music, but seldom. But um, um, we're in this part that's real quiet before it builds up. And this person's going, why isn't everybody? Because we're not playing Let's Dance with everyone screaming and clapping along. You dig what I'm saying? Right, 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 right. And um, I remember telling David that, you know, either you, either you continue challenging yourself or you're going to turn into Frankie Valley, and um, and and believe me, I got the the utmost respect for Frankie Valley. He made some fucking great records. Okay, those records, Four Seasons, some of those are great that Bob Crew made. But you understand what I'm saying as far as Frankie? Sure. Valley. And and uh, he would laugh about that. Um, so we did. Um, we put out the first record, and then I find out we were supposed to do a Europe-America tour. It gets cut down to six or seven gigs because David gets offered $50 million to go do a farewell tour, one of those bullshit things. Now, what All do right. you do? Sit and say to someone, yeah, you really shouldn't take that $50 million. But I'll tell you, it's it it the first record sold – but if we had toured behind it, it probably would have done double or triple at the time. But it was very confusing because we have this record out. We do just a several promotion gigs. Then David's off doing a farewell tour singing the hits. So that put mm. Tim Machine off for about seven, eight months. And in that time, we recorded the second record and um, we – eventually did a tour of America, Europe, and Japan. We were signed, uh, the second record, Tim Machine 2, we were signed to uh, JBC, 
you know, JBC that made the, they had a label. JBC right. that made the cassettes. So Japanese, mm-hmm. we're signed to a Japanese label. So subsequently, we're in Japan for a month, you know, touring, which is mm-hmm. most people go over there and do two, three gigs. We're gigging, you know, five nights a week all over, all over Japan. Interesting, very interesting. But we did a world tour and um, we were slated and we were talking about a third record, but that was it. The band was over. David went back to being David Bowie. And that was the tin machine. You know what I mean? Right, right, right. Yeah, no, nothing lasts forever, but but geez, man. That record holds up. Those tin machine records still sound good now to me. Yeah, man. You know, I, I love everything that Bowie ever did. You know, that's there's there's uh and and you know, I love everything that you ever did. So, you know, that's there's an intersection of of that that's uh it's a sweet spot for me, man. Um, well, so, so after that, you wind up doing, playing on a ton of records, producing a ton of records. I did this record, uh, called most super seven. Have you ever heard that? Yeah, 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 yeah. That was, uh, you did that with, uh, Charlie Sexton and, and, uh, and you on that record. The, so that's like kind of a collective. They did a few records. The personnel was kind of different on each one, yeah. but on the one that you played on, it was a bunch of the Texas tornadoes guys, Doug Som and Flacco Jimenez and yeah. Freddie Fender. Yep. And uh, it was Gatemouth Brown's last record. He's on there. Wow. Right? Wow. And it's a cool record, man. It's really cool. I've done some interesting records over the year. I've worked with some interesting people. Bootsy Collins. I've done some work with him in the studio up in the- Man, how cool is Bootsy, man? What a fucking- Talk about a pocket, man. Jesus Christ. Bootsy, man. I went in, man. I had a friend of mine. I was in, since I was in Detroit doing some recording. And then my friend lived up in Cincinnati uh, who worked uh, for Guitar Center Corporate. And he was dealing with Bootsy and Catfish, his late brother, you know, guitar player. And he said, man, right. so I went to visit him and Bootsy didn't know who I was. And Bootsy was a little hesitant. He said, well, you know, how drummers are they're either good or not. And that's true. <laughs> they're good or they're not. Right. I mean, right. it's true. And, and so I go to Bootsy's house and I ended up doing a couple tracks uh, laying the drums down on these tracks that were already recorded, and me and Bootsy hit it off really good. Bootsy and his beautiful wife, man, very sweet, and his son. And um, I, it was a great experience working with Bootsy Collins. Um, uh, I met Fred Wesley up there, was hanging out one day, and a bunch of other cats. But um, I've worked with a ton of weird people in the studios over the years, you know what I mean? Like lots of different records and artists and stuff that people aren't aware of, which is fine with me. But um, throughout things that people do know about me, whether it's Tin Machine or Lust for Life, I've managed to keep working, whether it's a club for 30 people or, you know, uh, playing down in Huntington, West Virginia, touring with this person or that just a player, you know what I'm saying? It gets back to the, right. it gets back to the thing of, um, I knew that and I didn't give a shit. Uh, yeah. When I was young with the limos and, and this and that and the rock star bullshit, but then just being a player and going out and playing like with our friend, Will, Will and me have done so many gigs like Dallas and Houston and weird, 
just weird little gigs, just playing. You know what I mean? Right. Little club and well, you were saying you were you were talking about how it's God given, but when when you said that, and I was I was I didn't want to get off track, but it's what's God given to me is it's it's a calling. It's it, God <laughs> gives you the desire to do it, the and not just the desire. It's like I would do this. I would forsake all others to do this because this is the most important thing. Let's look at it like this. You go to medical school, someone goes to medical school, they put in the eight out the eight years, whatever. Okay, they're they're a crummy doctor. They can probably start off making 60, 70 K a year. You can sit and and a bass player, guitar player, trumpet player, work on your shit. And really get it together. Ah, we don't want you. There's no guarantee. And then all the hardships that musicians go through. Most people, they would not understand a mindset of a Renee or a Hunt that have to do this, that are driven, and for some reason have managed to figure out to make a buck occasionally by doing this. But it's not, like I said, like a crummy doctor or electrician. Well, you guaranteed, you know what I'm saying? Like like a plumber or whatever, but musicians are the fucking craziest motherfuckers that'll sit for hours and they're it's a thing. My my older daughter's an artist and uh a great one and she she uh doesn't want to work uh as an art director or this or that. She gets commissioned for pieces and makes her own stuff sells online and she's got that same thing she started three four years old where she just had to draw okay right and then uh figure out like we all do as you get older how am i going to make a living doing this you dig what i'm saying right yeah that's the challenge of it i mean yeah yeah it is but it is a calling because no one i mean normal people would look at us and go you're fucking crazy um, I got a, yes. you know, with other jobs, I got the 401k, you got this, you got that. And being a musician, it's, there's no fucking guarantee except a lot of heartache, grief, and sorrow. Would you not agree? And, and, the, <laughs> and the joy of doing it, the joy of playing music in the moment and, you know, hopefully the adoration of strangers. Uh, so nothing like it. As you know, there is nothing like it. Absolutely. And so that brings us, uh, you know, we're, we're kind of winding up here, but I I do want to talk about, uh, you know, your, your, your first, uh, record as a, as a leader. I don't know if it's your first, but your most recent, um, your, your fat possum, uh, big legal mess, uh, release, uh, get, get your shit together by the hunt sales memorial. Now, why did you call it the hunt sales memorial? Okay, there's this drummer that I knew from back in the day in New York. His name was Buddy Miles. And Buddy Miles was living here prior to passing away. And no one was going out to his house to see him. I'd go out there and we'd have lunch and go hang out. And he was sick. No one. And then he dies and then he's at Threadgills, you know, that big Threadgills that was over on Riverside. Remember that one above Congress? Uh, right, right. Giant outdoor backstage, the Buddy Miles Memorial, and it's packed with all these guys with leather pants and white tennis shoes on. You know the look. And, and sure. everyone's there at his memorial. 
and acting like they were his best friend, but the near the meanwhile they had been ignoring him for years, right? Exactly. So I I looked at that memorial thing and I went, "Fuck, I'm going to have the memorial before I die." <laughs> <laughs> so it's kind of a perverse uh, uh, concept I got from that experience, and that's why. I nice, decide. nice. Well, you you have that dark sense of humor, man. It's uh, yeah. I guess. Uh, I've lived a dark life, you know, so uh, <laughs> I tap into that shit as if uh, not unlike a lot of us, you know, that what we've been through, some darker than others. But um, at the end of the day, if you can laugh at your shit, well, that's that's awesome, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, man. And you got you know, what a what a fucking body of work, man. Holy cow. That's, uh, you know, and you know what? I, I don't put much into my past. I don't really care much about it. I don't sit and listen to that. I'm interested in what I'm going to work on today and what I may be putting together for tomorrow, okay? But I do have this record out on Big Legal Mess, uh, on Sales Memorial, Get Your Shit Together, and you can order it. Um, wherever you order vinyl from, there's no more uh, Tower Records or Licorice Beats or whatever. Most people order stuff. You go on YouTube, there's several videos I put together um, that are up there, promotional for the album. And really cool videos too, man. Uh, that that uh, that's I've been I've been digging that that one uh, Angel of Darkness. I, if if you yeah. don't mind, I might put that at the end of this podcast. But then you also have the the other video for One Day. It's beautiful testament has has your mom and dad pictured there in it. Well, uh, One Day it's it's yeah I put them in it, but it's it's pretty universal. The One Day the lyrics in that, not to get off onto whatever, but you know One Day I'll do this. We all say. You know, you've been meaning to clean out the garage or you've been meaning to do this or do this for your old lady or do it. We all have that. I'm going to stop doing this, but not yet. You know what I'm talking about? Right, so, right, right, right. You know, whatever it may be. So um, a lot of the material, that record I did was really done. It was done with uh, Bruce helped me. Bruce, you know, Bruce. Bruce. Yeah, yeah, Bruce Watson. Bruce Watson, uh, and I met Bruce, and Bruce understood. I, w I went in and worked on a couple tracks with Will, so Bruce saw me work. Then he got to know me, and I did a couple. I'll go do gigs, and I'll pick up a couple players and get up and do an hour on stage without rehearsal or without whatever, just get up and do it, okay? And... um Bruce saw me and saw something in me. And um, I'm probably no different than those guys 20 years ago he had on his label. Um, those blues guys. R.L. Burnside. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, uh, and T-Model Ford. Yeah, right. I'm not saying I'm them, but I'm a white version of somebody who's been around forever and is still doing it. And for, for me at my age... I was not going to go to a record label and try to get a deal. Not at six at then at 65 years old, but Bruce saw some value in me as a person and as an artist. And I can never thank him enough for giving me the shot and putting out some product. We did the record very fast. We would go in and do six songs in one day, do all the overdubs by the next day. 
Then I'd come back to Austin, then I flew back up there, did another six songs in one day, did the overdubs by the next day, done. And then the rest was just mixing and mastering the normal stuff. You know what I mean? But um, nice. Bruce Watson, can't thank him enough. You know what I mean? Um, and it's such a rocking record, man. It has such an explosive sound. You know, you, you, your drumming, your, your singing is, is so powerful, man. Thank you. Well, you know, I, 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 thank you so much for coming on this podcast, man. This is a, it's a dream come true to, to, you know, count you as a friend and, and to, to have you, uh, you know, uh, to join the troubled nation. Hey, I appreciate it. I, I appreciate it so much. And it's been really a pleasure Manny, we haven't spoken too much, but you know what? Maybe uh, we'll get together and have some beignets or something one of these days. Yeah, sure. That sounds like a good idea, even though I hate beignets. Well, I do. You know, we'll, you know, we'll have something. We don't have to eat them and just, you know. Yeah, we we could have cocktails and you could have beignets. You know, you know, Hunt seems like a, a guy who has a, obviously a lot to say, and uh, like he would be a good candidate for a part two, don't you think, Manny? Sure. Right on. You name the you name the time. I'll be there. I really appreciated this, and um, it's been my pleasure. And thank you so much for the opportunity. Well, thank you. You can. All right. Well, Hunt. Hunt, we always like to say in, in the troubled nation, uh, trouble never ends. But the struggle continues. Good night. Good night. So long. Now I know why, why I hate you. You give me, you give me the grief. Every night and every day, child, I hate you in every way now. But you're so, so close to me. Yeah.